If you haven't been here, we have been preaching through the Bible, looking at individual characters throughout Scripture. We started with four men from the Bible, uh, specifically the Apostle Peter, the High Priest Aaron, King Saul, and the Prophet Jonah. Last week, we talked about Tamar, and this week, we're talking about Bathsheba. This story is incredibly difficult to hear again in light of the fact that King David takes advantage of Bathsheba, in light of so many scandals of men taking advantage of women, the fact that it happens inside the church and outside the church, is an obvious indication that this story is a tragedy from start to finish. As I was thinking about this sermon throughout the week, I just wanted to make sure to express my motivation from the very beginning I don't view this story as a myth. I don't think of it as an interesting factoid from the distant past. This story is true. It really happened, and my heart breaks for anyone who's been taken advantage of in a similar way. I want you to know that I don't view myself just as your preacher. I don't spend all my time just reading and writing for sermons throughout in the office, but I view myself as a pastor. Pastoral care is not an extra or an add-on for me. It's essential to my job. And because of that, I know that every single person in this room has been sinned against. There's not just a select few of people who've had evil done to them. It's a universal human experience. We can't get through life without being the victim of someone else's evil. Someone in here knows what it's like to be betrayed, cheated, or lied to. Someone in here knows what it's like to be misused or manipulated. Someone in here knows what it's like to be hurt by loved ones, family, or friends. Everyone in here knows what it's like to be sinned against. And I probably couldn't even begin to fathom all of the stories in this room where you could, you could tell in gory detail what's been done to you. But there's a thought that the enemy, Satan, wants us to believe, which is that we're defined by the worst sin done to us. Let me say that again. The enemy wants you to believe, if you don't already, that you are defined by the worst sin done to you. If your wife left you, the enemy wants you to think all you will ever be is divorced. If a family member took advantage of you, the enemy wants you to think all I will ever be is a victim. If a business partner betrayed you, the enemy wants you to think, all I will ever be is the idiot who trusted him. But here's the question we have to ask. Is this true or is it a lie? Right? Should should every person be limited by the most evil thing done to them? I mean, if you go down that road for a second, what, what you're saying is that there's no future for a victim after victimization. There's no story after an evil chapter. 
which means that every abuser gets to define the one they mistreat. All victimizers get to have the final word. Now, you can tell what I think by the way I'm phrasing it, but I don't want you to just hear my thoughts. I want you to see what God does in the life of this woman Bathsheba because sometimes we only talk about what happens to her. And then we're done. And we don't talk about who Bathsheba becomes. So as your pastor, I, I don't want this sermon to just merely bring up bad memories of your own life or maybe a loved one's life. I want God to use this sermon to show you his infinite love for you. I cannot do anything with my words this morning to bandage any wounds in your life. But I have been praying throughout this week that God would contribute to your healing at his hands through these words. So I want to begin with prayer. Let's bow again and pray to our Heavenly Father. God, your love is infinite. For those whose hearts are broken this morning, I pray that this sermon would be healing. <clears throat> Take my tiny, finite, incomplete words, and please, by your power, by your word, by your love, mend any brokenness in this room. Make every word, even the tone with which I speak, to be a blessing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes we think that these characters in this story, Bathsheba, Uriah, and David, didn't really know each other. But that's not true. 3,000 years ago, when Israel was a new upcoming power in the region. There were other surrounding nations that noticed this new King David in the south. Some of the best warriors from surrounding nations were actually drawn to David. There was something magnetic about him, something compelling about him. And one of those warriors drawn to David was a man named Uriah. And perhaps he saw more in David than just military prowess because David, at the time Uriah met him, was a very holy man. He was known for writing these beautiful psalms in his language. He, he looked to God and inquired of God and always asked what God wanted. And we have every reason to believe that Uriah actually got very close to David because we're told in 2 Samuel 23 that David created an elite force of soldiers in which Uriah took a part. They were called the 30, David's mighty men. And Uriah was one of them. When Uriah joined, he met a man named Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Eliam was an older member of this elite force of 30 soldiers, and Eliam had a daughter named Bathsheba. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Um, we know from 2 Samuel 15 that Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, later became one of David's closest advisors. So think about that. Ahithophel and his son Eliam and Eliam's daughter Bathsheba all knew David. They were in his inner ring. He was very well aware 
of these men and this woman. And now that you know that, you know that one spring, after the cold of winter had dissipated and the muddy lands dried up, it was time to go to war. We're told in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent out his entire army, but he decided that he was not going with them. He was going to remain in the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine for a second how that conversation went in the home of Uriah and Bathsheba. Uriah comes home and says, we're going back to war. King David has told us that we're going to besiege Rabbah. But David has decided that he's going to remain in Jerusalem. You can imagine Bathsheba being shocked. King David is known as a man of war. He's defeated all of Israel's enemies. I mean, this was confusing at best and dishonorable at worst. I mean, what would happen to all the soldiers without their king on the front line with them in battle? We can picture Bathsheba reassuring Uriah, no, 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 David must have a good reason for this. He must have a good reason for staying behind. He's wise. He's good. I mean, Uriah, you've known David for years. Y'all have been soldiers together for, for a long time. I, I know David, Bathsheba might have said. Everyone knows he's a man after God's own heart. Now, we know that at some point late in the afternoon one day, Bathsheba performed the ritual washing that the Torah, the law of God, prescribed for all Israelite women. So we, we need to stop right there and make something very crystal clear. Your, Bathsheba's husband and father are out fighting for David. She is in the privacy of her home, and from his rooftop, David sees her. Now, you might have heard a, a song called Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, and you know the lyric. It says, David saw her bathing on the roof, right? Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew him. That song is dead wrong. David is on the roof of his palace, and Bathsheba is in the privacy of her home, unaware of a man watching her. If you have any image of your mind, maybe from a preacher from the past or, or a piece of art where Bathsheba is seducing David, get rid of it. It's not biblical. Now, David at first didn't realize who this woman was. It, it might be in the early evening. He just sees her figure. We're told that he sees an unnamed woman. He doesn't know her at first, so he calls a servant over and inquires about the woman. Who is that? And when the servant sees her, he reminds David. He says, isn't she Bathsheba? It's actually phrased as a question in the Hebrew. It, you, David, you, you know who she is. And by the way, the servant just adds a couple of details. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know both of those men. They're some of your closest warriors. Those are men who have fought and risked their lives for you. This is the servant doing his best he can to warn him, don't go down this path. Now, let's think about it from Bathsheba's perspective. Servants of the king come to her in the middle of the night. You can imagine what she might have thought. Her husband and father are off to war. If you've ever had the experience of having a son or a husband or a brother or a friend in a war, and you know the pit in your stomach that if someone in charge, someone from the palace comes to see you, what she might be thinking right now. 
What other news could she receive that maybe her husband or her father are dead? She has no idea what's going on. She has no idea what David is doing. She has no idea what David is planning. These messengers come and they take her to the palace. And David brings her to her chamber. And if this slide is available, it reads, He took her, she came to him, and he slept with her. Okay, we are not given a lot of details about this scene. But let's be very clear about what we do know. According to this passage, all Bathsheba was doing was obeying the Torah, following the rules of purification. We also know that David is a professional warrior who has rarely lost a battle in his life. She cannot physically outmatch him. He is in his prime at 50 years old. She is probably in her early 20s maybe even a teenager. As modern 21st century Americans, we have no concept of being in the presence of a king. You have no idea how much power he had in that situation. His orders were the next closest thing to the Torah itself. How could any Israelite man or woman say no to him? We also know that if Bathsheba had consented to this, had committed adultery with David... She would have been later rebuked by God, but nowhere in Scripture do we see the slightest condemnation of Bathsheba or her actions. This situation is a complete power imbalance that David exploits for sex. The Hebrew reads, David took her. And as soon as he sleeps with her, he's done. He sends her home. Now, if you grew up in church, you, you know what comes later of David's whole plot against Uriah. And I have never in my life had any problem saying that David murdered Uriah. And you could get really technical and say, well, well David only puts Uriah in a dangerous position, and, and he doesn't really wield the weapon himself. But we know the truth. We know that David kills Uriah, and we are perfectly willing to call it what it is. It's murder. But why? Why do we have a problem calling this, what David does to Bathsheba, sexual assault? If the president of a company called his employee's wife to come to his office and did to her what David does to Bathsheba, we wouldn't hesitate. We would call it what it is. And maybe we don't like saying it because it's just not easy to reconcile David's sin and his other good actions in life. But to do justice to what she goes through, to what she endures, we need to name this. Say it what, what it is. It's sexual assault. God himself later says to David about these actions, you, David, have despised me. You've taken Uriah's wife as your own. And as soon as, as, soon as he's done, he just... He's got what he's wanted, and he sends her home. After some time, Bathsheba sends her only words in this entire story to David. She says, I'm pregnant. This would have been a wonderful opportunity for David to confess his sin. But he doesn't. He tries multiple layers of cover-up. 
First, he tries to bring the husband home to sleep with his wife. He says, go home, wash your feet, relax, take a break. But Uriah is so noble and honorable, he refuses to do so. And so David has another layer of cover-up where he puts Uriah on the front line to get him killed. That way, the only person who knows he did not sleep with Bathsheba can't say anything because he's dead. Throughout Bathsheba's entire pregnancy, David doesn't make a single confession of guilt until the prophet Nathan confronts him. And because of David's sin, God punishes David with the death of this son, the first boy born to David. That son is struck with an illness and dies. Now, in this story, most of what we read is about what happens to Bathsheba. Evil perpetrated against her, sin done to her, right? David sins for Bathsheba, he sleeps with Bathsheba. He plots her husband's death. David marries her. All the verbs are attached to David, and she is the object of all of David's verbs. He quite literally objectifies her, treats her like a thing. But then, this is where we normally stop. But you have to keep going. You have to see what happens in Bathsheba's life. What where her story actually goes. Because she and David have a second son named Solomon. And we're told the Lord loved Solomon. Now David has a, a lot of children. He has a lot of sons because he has a lot of wives. A lot of potential heirs to his throne. But God has a special love for Bathsheba's son. And we're told that God changes Solomon's name to Jedidiah, which means loved by God. And you know, if you've read anything from the Bible, that when God changes someone's name, he has big plans for them. This is an indication that Solomon, of all the sons, is going to take over the throne. Which means that God picks Bathsheba's son, not any other woman's son, to be the next king. And you need to know the consequences of that choice for Bathsheba. Because in the kingdom of Israel, the mother of the king played a very special role. We normally think that a queen must be the wife of a king, but in Israel, that's not the way it works. The queen was the mother of the king. We read this pattern in scripture over and over again. We read a king's name, we read how old they are, how long they reigned, and then that last column was their mother's name. We don't read a lot about the king's wives. It's because in Israel, the queen was the mother of the king. And if you don't believe me, this is from 1 Kings chapter 2. Years later, when Solomon has come to power, Bathsheba goes to King Solomon to speak to him, and the king stands up to meet her. And he bows down to her, sits down on his throne, and then he does this. He has a throne brought for the king's mother, Bathsheba, and she sits at his right hand. The right hand is a very important place next to any king. Joseph sits down at the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus sits down at the right hand of the father, and Bathsheba sits at the right hand of her son Solomon. It is true that Bathsheba is a woman who was a victim of a wicked thing, but she is not defined by the sin that David did to her. God decides that that chapter in the story will not define the whole narrative. Bathsheba's legacy continues. God has the final word, and God brings real good out of this evil without ever downplaying the evil done or calling it good. God decides. 
that she's, she's not going to just be this victim. She's going to be a queen. And actually, God goes one step further because God actually decides to come into the world through the lineage of Bathsheba. If you flip all the way to the first pages of the New Testament, you'll find out that Jesus doesn't just magically appear out of thin air. His genealogy is listed there. We read, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. And guess what? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba ends up on the first page of the New Testament because Jesus has decided to be in her lineage. He's decided to make her story a part of his story. And you might think, well, it's cruel to not use her name. Why, why doesn't her name actually end up? Why doesn't it say whose mother was Bathsheba? I actually like this because it means David's sin is on the record. The Bible makes for really bad propaganda. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been another man's wife. Bathsheba's story continues. But David's sin is not abolished. It's not erased. We know what he did. This is the gospel according to Bathsheba. You are not defined by the worst sin done to you, but by God's word and love. You are, I cannot repeat this enough, you are not defined by the worst sin done to you. You are defined by God's word, God has the final say, and God's love. God goes even further. He isn't just in Bathsheba's genealogy, he actually decides to mirror Bathsheba's life. If you go back and read the prophet Nathan's parable that convicts David of his sin, he speaks about Bathsheba in very coded language. He says, once upon a time, there is a rich man who owns many lambs, and there is this poor man who owned a little ewe lamb. Now, the prophet Nathan is, is trying to tell this story to convict David so that David doesn't realize what he's talking about. But I think it's interesting, his word choice. He talks about Bathsheba as a lamb. Jesus himself is called the Lamb of God. Both are lambs, both are objectified, both are sacrificed, both are innocent in their suffering, and both are quiet in their tragedy. Jesus doesn't just decide to be in her lineage. He decides to experience the suffering that she experienced. The Lamb of God was killed on the cross but he was not ultimately defined by the worst thing done to him. I've been thinking this past week about how many Bathshebas there are in the world. How many men or women or children are victimized, taken advantage of, manipulated. What I want to say to you, if you identify with her, is that no David in the world can take you from the love of Christ. Jesus holds you in his hands, and no, no matter how many Davids try to take you from the love of Christ, they cannot. 
One of my favorite things that Jesus ever says is, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. There are all sorts of Davids who try to take what they want today. But no one, no one can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus. There you're secure, there you are held, there you are safe. You are not defined by the takers of the world. You're held in the hands of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for any of us in this room who have felt that we are defined by the worst thing ever done to us, someone else's evil. And Father, if, if that thought is creeping into our mind, I pray that you just help us fight against it. It's a lie. Help us to grab hold of the truth that we're held in your hand. No one can take you from us. And no one can take us from you. Father, I pray that if there's any, anybody in this room that needs prayer, anybody who needs more healing, that you would use everyone else in this room to, to bless them and pray for them and seek healing with them. Father, if there are any tragedies in this room, I ask that you bless those who've just faced such evil. Father, I pray that we would mourn with those who mourn, that we would come alongside them and have compassion, and, and Father, that you would use each and every one of us for healing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.